Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello singing our anthem, Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate Tommy as he opens each episode, inviting us to ignite and launch our most elaborate freedom dreams. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Aleem and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. Actually, Malik and I are here together in the studio for the first time in a year. We're broadcasting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling all justice seekers and freedom fighters. And we're tuned into the big and agitating questions. What is freedom and how do we get free? Where do we come from and where do we intend to go? How can we name this fleeting historic moment as accurately as possible in order to be more effective and powerful in our freedom quest. We're gathered together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. We're talking to you today from Chicago, ancestral and currently home to many indigenous peoples and nations, notably the Three Fires Confederacy. As justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, we remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. Today's poem, Water Remembers, is read by our colleague, comrade and friend, Kevin Kumashiro. Bill, thanks so much. It's such a thrill and an honor to be asked to read this poem that is about and from Hawaii. Um, as you know, I grew up in Hawaii. My family has lived there for five generations, and we trace our ancestry back to the early Asian settlers who came to work as laborers on the plantations in the late 1800s. And this is a significant moment in Hawaiian history because this is when the kingdom of Hawaii was transitioning to the belligerent occupation and forceful overthrow by the United States. And within the next few decades, the kingdom of Hawaii would be annexed and then become the 50th state. And the legacies and continuance of this US imperialism, um, extractive capitalism and racist militarism permeates and can be seen throughout the islands still today, but also reverberates. We can hear, we can feel them in the arts, including in this poem. So this poem is titled Water Remembers by Brandy Nalani McDougall. Waikiki was once a fertile marshland ahupua'a, mountain water gushing from the valleys of Makiki, Manoa, Palolo, Waialai, and Wailupe to meet ocean water. Seeing such wealth, Kanaka planted hundreds of fields of kalo, uala, ulu, in the uka, built fish ponds in the mulivai. Waikiki fed Oahu people for generations so easily that its ocean-raised surfers hailed the highest of ali'i to its shores. 
Waikiki is now a miasma of concrete and asphalt, its waters drained into a canal dividing tourists from resident. The mountain's springs and waterfalls trickle where they are allowed to flow and left stagnant elsewhere, polyolate with staphylococcus. In the uplands, the fields have long been dismantled, their rock terraces and hail looted to build the walls of multi-million dollar houses with panoramic diamond head and or ocean views. Closer to the ocean, hotels fester like pustules, the sand stolen from other aina to manufacture the beaches, seawalls maintained to keep the sand in so suntanned oil tourists can laze on what never was, what never should have been. No one is fed plants and fish from this aina now. Its land value has grown so that nothing but money can be grown, its waters unpotable, polluted. Each year, as heavy rainfalls flood the valleys, spill over gulches, slide the foundations of overpriced houses, invade sewage pipes, and send brown water runoff to the ocean, the king tides roll in, higher in its warming, lingering longer and breaking through sandbags and barricades, eroding the resorts. This is not the end of civilization, but a return to one. Only the water, insisting on what it should always have, spreading its liniment over infected wounds. Only the water, rising above us, reteaching us wealth and remembering its name. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write where we encourage you to shake free from whatever editor is perched on your shoulder, commenting disapprovingly on your every word, and write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our Freedom Seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. So this is a moment to put words on the page. No editing or second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop up into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Think of a body of water you have known, or look carefully at the taken-for-granted water near at hand, in your sink perhaps. Write about the journey of that water, where it's come from, and where it's going. Okay, start writing, and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Let's move on now to our segment, Reports from the Front Row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook, where we look at schools and education and the world from the inside with our engaged and fearless reporter, Light Eilee. She's a writer, an artist, a perceptive observer, and a smart mini-ethnographer. She's 13 years old and in the seventh grade. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Lighty. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's nice to see you. And I thought we should, we, we haven't talked in a while on tape. We've talked off tape, but um, I wanted to check in with you and ask you about two or three things. First is, um, I understand you're back in person school. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. 
and tell me what it's like. How many days a week do you go and, and what does it feel like? And is it like normal? Is it weird? What's weird about it? What's good about it? Um, they call it hybrid school, but actually we're back four days a week. Um, we say we, we do online on, on Wednesdays. Um, okay. it's, it's, I'm not happy about the way they've been handling it. Why? I think that, well, I, I feel like it's not fair to make us go back four days a week all of a sudden. I think they should do, my sister is a sophomore in high school and they only have to go back two days a week. Why is that? What's the difference? I don't get it. I actually have no idea. I'm not saying, like, I, I of course, high school is a lot harder. She's under more stress. But I I don't know why we have to go back so much. But it's, you don't it's like a being change. But you don't like being back, or you like being back. There are good things and bad things. It's a big change, and it's kind of uncomfortable to be back because I'm used to being in my room and being able to, you know, get snacks and be comfortable when I want to. But it's there are good things too. Like they give us some free time. Um, and I get to see my friends more and, you know, it's, it's good to, it's good to be back in real school, but also it's really tiring. I'm like completely exhausted at the end of each day wow. and I'm under so much stress. Like I know everyone is like, you just don't want homework, but we really have a lot of work and it's, it's hard. Well, you know, I wonder, you say your sister's under stress, you're under stress. What is it about school that makes it so stressful? Why stress? I'm in seventh grade, so people say this is ridiculous. But the pressure of getting good grades is real. And the reason why I'm so crazy about my grades is because I'm so afraid, like, this is a very cliched thing, but I'm so afraid of failure. I'm so afraid that I, like, won't go to, like, that I won't get into college and I won't get a job and I'll live in my parents' basement until I'm middle-aged. So the idea of getting one bad grade really scares me and that makes my homework seem so daunting and so terrifying. Wait a minute. This is the weirdest thing. You're 13 years old and you're worrying about being middle-aged, living in your parents' basement? Give me a break. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what everybody says. Everyone says I'm too young to worry about that, but I'm worried about so many things that don't even involve me and that I shouldn't be nervous about. And, and there are just so many things to be worried about, you know, like I'm worried about college and I'm worried about politics and I'm worried about global warming and I'm worried about death and I'm worried about my appearance and I'm worried about what people think of me and my social life, and my grades, everything. And it's all just so stressful. It, it makes me, like, really anxious all the time. But who, who puts this sense of worry into you? Do your, are your parents hyperachievers who make you feel worried? Are they putting pressure on you? Absolutely not. They actually don't. They, <laughs> they're actually really supportive about school. They said, they, they said that like, even if I fail my classes, but it doesn't make me unhappy, they'll be happy. I don't, nobody's putting this stress on me. I think it's just internalized by the media and by crippling worries of that I'm not going anywhere. 
well, wait, blame the media. That's that's what everybody does. Blame the media. But I mean, really, the media is not saying, lighty, if you don't do this, this and this, you won't go to college. I mean, isn't this somewhere? I wonder where it's coming from. Popular culture, your peers. You say your parents, do your parents ever give you a mental health day? Yeah, actually, um, I'm trying to get one tomorrow because my best friend is um, is online tomorrow. She's doing online school tomorrow instead of in person. Mm-hmm. And we have a gym class together. And our gym class assignment right now is to find a partner and choreograph a dance routine with them. Oh, sweet. And if she and and since she's not in person, I can't be her partner, mm. and I'm gonna have to be the only one in my gym class to perform alone. Yipes! Pressure. And that's so humiliating. Like I can't, I can't fathom. You can't fathom how much I don't want to do it. Well, wait a minute. You're you're a great dancer. You're you're uh, you're a wonderful, creative person. You probably have a great dance all by yourself. But being the only person in my class without a partner is a humiliating experience. Really? Because that seems to me it could be a unique experience. You could say, hey, I'm the star of this show. Hell with the rest of you. I don't need a partner. Um, Easy for me to say. I think 13-year-old girls think of it the same way. Well, you think 76-year-old men have a weird way of looking at the world? Usually I do think that, yeah. Okay, good. Um, Here's the thing. I want to go back to this question of seeing people. Because you say it's awkward after a year off. Has everybody changed remarkably from 12 to 13, from 6 to 7th? They have changed, but not in the way I would prefer. Every year I'm like, yeah, but maybe the boys will be cute and mature next year. And then they just never are. One of the boys in my grade looks like a telephone pole with hair. Damn, that's pretty harsh. It, it's hard. I feel like it's mean to say, but. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, I, you know, this stress thing worries me, and I want to encourage you as best I can to take as many mental health days as you need. Curl up with a good book, hang out with a friend, play with your cats, come over here and hang out with me. Um, I just think you should not be stressed. You're 13. Do you imagine, by the way, th- thinking of stress, you're going to be more stressed in high school? Honestly, I would love to go back in time and talk to my fifth grade self, especially at the moment when I was crying in the bathroom because of a grade I got on a test. I would really just like to go back there and be like, I don't even remember the grades I got in fifth grade. They don't matter. And I told my sister that, who's a sophomore, and she was like, you're going to think that about this year, too. Good point. Don't you think that's true? But it. It doesn't feel that way now. Right now, it feels like if I get a bad grade, it'll ruin my life. Yeah, but don't you think it's true for her, too? Don't you think once she graduates high school, she'll think, oh, sophomore year, nothing to it? That's one of the things that scares me about life. I feel like a quote in from one of my favorite shows is, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. Beautiful. I think that's like my motto because it just it applies to my life so much. Today, I actually um, lay in my bed face down while um, while playing a slideshow from fourth grade on my computer. Mm. I found it like in my piano computer while I was cleaning out files I don't I didn't need, and I was just so sad. I was like, 
you had so many complaints about fifth grade. Why didn't you stop for a moment and be like, I have everything. I have recess. I have a bunch of boys like me. I have teachers who will completely support me. I, I have no worries. My life is so fun. And now I like have so much homework. I'm so stressed out all the time. And it's just, it's like, I really wish I could have just stopped for a minute and enjoyed it, but I didn't have anyone to tell me to do that. But isn't the lesson from that to say, stop now and enjoy this? In other words, live life now. You're not living for some future perfect life. Live life now. If you're not enjoying life now, what's the point? What's the meaning of life if it's not to live fully? That's why I don't like, I don't like the pressure of school. I've Nobody really likes school, but like it causes me to be anxious. And some people are anxious and they don't know why. And the fact that that I know for a fact that school is what's making me anxious, but there's no way to escape it is really upsetting. Well, you know, we were talking about stress and you said a lot of things, politics, the world. Maybe we could touch on two quick things. One is you said the environment. What is it about the environment that stresses you out? I'm worried about how bad it's going to be when I grow up because everyone is like someone else will handle it, but who is going to handle it? I, I don't know. And I don't really know anything about what's happening, but I know that something's happening. And you're worried about it, even though you don't know the exactly the dimensions of it, you hear about it. It comes into your world. You think about it and you stress about it. Yeah, I, I I said to one of my teachers one time, like we were studying um, early early humans, early uh, civilization, um, and I was like, isn't it weird that someday, like maybe some kid in a classroom is gonna be like, it's gonna like hold up a picture of like a Tesla and be like, what is this? Like, how did they live using these? Because they're gonna have like. Because in the fantasy version of the future, they're going to have like teleportation and everything is going to be made of like glass and machinery. And she was like, I'm more worried about where climate change is going to get us. Right. And what do you think? That was a depressing answer to my question. Yes, it was. But it's true. You know, I'm scared. But if we've left you a mess, if the older generations have left a mess, what is it that your generation is going to have to do to get a hold of things? Everyone in my grade right now holds kind of the same views about climate change. But I know that there are people who are raising their kids to not have the same beliefs. So we're going to have just the same controversies that you guys have. But so what are you going to do? Are you going to argue? Are you going to win the argument? Are you going to save the world? I don't know. That's another thing that's stressful for me. I can't do that. Like, I don't know how. And I I guess I'll, I guess I can try to learn. But it's a very daunting thing to have the world be like dying and have me still be in the beginning of my life. And it's going to affect the rest of it. One thought I just had, because you're such a good writer, why don't you write a futuristic novel, a a utopian novel, in which a 13-year-old girl uses her superpowers to organize the rest of the 13-year-olds, and they overthrow the older generation, and 
and save the planet. Why don't you write that? That, that sounds good. Well, you know, the thing is, you, you know, you, you describe your stress and you say your sister's under even more stress. Is there ever a point in the future when you can imagine living without stress? Um, the one thing that's kind of keeping me from being like, this is a slog and I'm never going to get out of it because I have eight or eight more years of school left is this is the summer. You know, I, Mm. I'm going to like see people that I really like and it's going to be fun. So now I'm just counting down the days. I think we have 50 days left. Okay, well, keep counting. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the thing is you do have to find a way to get some joy out of every day or you will drive yourself nuts. And uh, I doubt that there's a point when you get to the point where there's nothing to worry about. I mean, you say, well, I'll be done with college. Yeah, but then there's a question of a job and then you have a job and then maybe you have a kid and then there's a question about worrying about your kid, which is a really intense worry. And then you get to my age and you have grandkids and then you worry about your grandkids. So, you know, there's always stuff to worry about, but there's also always stuff to to hang on to and to be joyful about, including stuff like imagining a better world and then working for it. That makes sense. Well, onward and upward, lady. I want you to take a break, take a big, big, deep breath, go take a bubble bath or something um, so you can get a little joy out of today. And then let's try to get together this weekend. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. We'll talk soon. Of course. All right, so the conversation that you had uh, in the interview today talked a lot about organizing in the past. How have you seen the environmental justice movement evolve since the 60s or whenever you became politically active to now, um, including like how it's intersected with other issues then and now? You know, I mean, one of the things that, just asking the question that way, one of the things that it brings to mind is the idea of intersectionality, the idea that's really been around from as long as I've been politically aware, but it needs to be articulated sometimes. And the way you just said that does that for me. So we can't, you know, was it Audre Lorde who said we can't have, you know, individual um, struggles because we don't live isolated lives. We don't break our lives into race, class, gender, you know, the environment, the uh, the criminal justice system, we're living an organic life, a, a total life. So for me... It's funny I, because we can't even get rid of the criminal justice no, system as we record in our in our studio. They're, they're, always, they're always there right outside the window. No, but you know, what, what it means to me, Malik, is that I've known about the environmental movement kind of forever and even participated in aspects of it. But I've gone to people like Jeff Jones and Eleanor Stein, who are on the show today, for real clarity about it. And one of the things I love about their work is that they see the environment not as a white person's movement or as a liberal movement or as something that all good-hearted people are involved in. What they see with laser-like precision is that the environment, like every other aspect of American life, is separated between, you know, on, on, on the traditional levels of oppression and privilege. So, for example... Um, the burdens and the benefits of the environment are unequally distributed. Who gets the burdens? Black people, people of color. You can go to any 
any neighborhood of color in the country and ask, what, what are the burdens you suffer here? We're near a highway. We're near a refinery. We're near a factory. We're near a garbage dump. Mm-hmm. That's, they're all located right. to, you know, to disparately impact black people right. and people of color. And, it, and it's, it sounds conspiratory when you say it, and it is, right? It's a, it's a grand conspiracy. People made that decision with intention, with intentionality. They decided we are going to put these environmental poisoners in places that are near people who are so marginalized that if they try to push back on what we are obviously doing wrong, nobody's going to listen. Exactly. That's the concentration effects of segregation. The concentration effects of a segregated city like Chicago means that if you have a polluting factory, you put it here and the impact, you put it here where people without voice, without power, without a lot of agency collectively will suffer and they won't make the noise that needs to be made. Or if you're going to build a highway, literally, you go to New Orleans, they built the interstate right through the black community. That means all that poison is pouring into those kids' schools, those kids' homes, right? But that's the concentration effects of poverty. It means policing, which you and I know so well here in Chicago. Policing can focus on this neighborhood and ignore this other neighborhood. And all the traditions of privilege and oppression are reflected in that. But the thing that's, I think, interesting and important about this conversation we're having today is that it's no different when it comes to questions like air pollution than than when it comes to criminal justice or education. And a good example of that is what, what happened in Little Village last year in the south side of Chicago. This is a majority Latinx community. Um, and there was a, a, a building demolition last year. I'm not sure what the building was, but it released pollutants into the air. And the residents of this community are pushing back. They've been protesting for a year and they want justice. They want to know why they weren't informed that this demolition was was about to happen. Why weren't measures taken to mitigate the the dust and the inhalants that people would, would, would uh, experience as a result of that? Yeah, I remember that. That was an incredible struggle. There was another sit-in recently on the southeast side, uh, and Brian Sitchko Lopez, one of the socialist alder people in our, in our city, was part of it. But again, it was around this question of how much poison do we have to inhale? Why can't we figure out a way to share the benefits and the burdens? And the short answer is white supremacy. That's the answer. The solution is to overthrow white supremacy. Right. What strikes me about the environmental justice movement in particular is that there's evidence of this kind of fallacy that we've been sold, right, as Americans, that rugged individualism is the route to prosperity, right? Like that is the kind of attitude that leads you where you need to go, right? That That's a fallacy, right? And I see that clearly in the environmental justice movement because we're made to believe that we have just as much impact on the environment as corporations or extractionary industries. Um, and, and, and to me, it helps kind of create this lie uh, that it, it is on us to save the world, to, to create projects of repair in this particular area that we did not. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like I want to recycle my bottles. I want to be, uh, you know, I want to go to the compost space and so on. And I want to do that. But the illusion that you're referring to is that somehow if I recycle, that somehow that will solve the problem. So when you say it's not on us, that's true, except it is on us collectively. So even as I want to go to the compost 
and take my compost to the garden, even as I want to recycle bottles and cans, I have to remember that the, what's really on me is getting a collective response to a collective problem. So another way that that manifests is the creation of other industries to address the pollution that other things have caused. So for example, the whole paper straw thing, this thing drives me crazy. I hate paper straws. Do not hand me a paper straw. You're not going to make me feel guilty about the environment for using a, a, a plastic straw. It's ridiculous. Like I, I just got back from, from Puerto Rico and it's, it's all around there, the, the signs save the save the sea don't use straws um and then we've created these industries that um are now then tasked with you creating um compostable you know spoons and forks and uh safer uh straws um and I, I and i find it hard to believe that the expansion of our kind of consumerist um consumerist solution approach to everything is creating more damage than if I use the damn plastic straw in the first place. You know, the astonishing thing that you're bringing to my mind is that capitalism always has a solution to whatever problem is identified by the masses. And the solution is always more capitalism. Right. And that's bullshit. And we, you know, we and have to so resist. Obviously, it's, it's a snake eating his tail. Like yeah. the snake has to like realize that at some point. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you think about, for example, we have too much carbon in the air. We have too much, too much, uh, you know, extraction of of um, carbon from the ground. So, what's the solution? For, according to kind of the Paris Accords and so on, carbon credits. Now, wait a minute. You mean you're creating a market, <laughs> you know, where you can deal in in poison? It's incredible. But of course, we do have markets in poison. We have markets in drugs and alcohol and pesticides and tobacco and everything. Mm -hmm. So this is this is the, the fatal flaw. We have to find solutions that are human based and human driven. And and that's why we're organizers. Mm -hmm. And that's why our policy has to come from the bottom up, Absolutely. not from the top down. And that's a very salient bow to put on it because it weighs on me to talk about these problems and never have solid way to address how we can make some progress on it, right? Yeah. You, you said the issue is people are being told that collective issues are actually individual issues. So the obvious solution to that is creating collective solutions to collective problems. Right, you know, one of the things that's always driven me nuts my whole adult life is we experience our problems as personal and private. They're so obviously social, looked at in a certain way. And as soon as we see them as social, we can begin to see social solutions. So something simple like, you know, like your family or my family. I need elder care, right, for my father at a certain point. Well, everybody needs elder care. I experience it as my personal problem. It's actually a collective problem. You need child care. We all need child care. Why are we seeing it as... You know, me and my partner are freaking out about how we're going to get the proper care when it ought to be seen that everybody shares this problem. So this is something we come back to again and again. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and that that is a clear explanation of manufactured scarcity. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the thing that's 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 absolutely true right now is we have massive unemployment and yet you look around the city, you look around the country, we have massive amount of work to do. How is it that we have millions of people unemployed and millions of important tasks to do around the infrastructure, around how, you know, rehabbing housing, around creating gardens and so on, all this work to do, 
but unemployment, and that's capitalism. Yeah, our, our comrade Damon Williams, one of his favorite uh, phrases is no people without houses, no houses without people. Exactly, exactly. You look at Chicago, the number of people who are unhoused in Chicago and the number of empty apartments is almost one-to-one. -one. The same way in, in, in parts of California where, yeah, where, where, the, where the housing markets are exorbitant and outrageous. Yeah, and so why, why we can't solve it? What's standing in the way of the unhoused being housed in those apartments, what's standing in the way is capitalism. Well, you know, it, it, the the thing about it, it's so avaricious and so totalizing. That they, capitalism can make money off of anything. And, you know, soon air will be for sale, kind of already is, water's for sale. But, you know, you think about certain basic necessities. Housing is one, health is one, education is one, food is one. And yet food, once it's been made a market, a product, and this is how we talk in this country, the housing market, the educational you know, market, not, not education, not housing. As long as you turn everything into cash, then you're going down the wrong road. And food is such a clear example because in the last 40 years, we've gotten to the point where somebody can say, I'm trying to take personal responsibility for my diet. How do you, how do you buy food that's not processed. How do you buy food without salt and sugar added into it? You, it's virtually impossible. Even those people who have enough money to go to the fancy upscale places, they're still consuming enormous amounts of empty calories. Why? Because the food industry dictates. Right. There's an interesting concept from uh, a Marxist uh, economist named Professor Richard Wolff. Uh, democracy at work, right? Like some people would 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 uh, view the kind of situation we find ourselves in with capitalism as we're too far gone. Like how can we, how can we even begin to unravel the consumerism, the materialism, the capitalism from our our society? But he says that if if we democratize the workplace, if we start by democratizing the workplace, um, when we give workers more control uh, over the means of production or, or over the administration of services. Um, and when those people have autonomy, have agency um, to kind of have input on what what product are we creating? What service are we providing? How are we doing it? Where are we doing it? That those people will then naturally respond by creating the type of product or the type of service uh, that would be both most beneficial um, to everyone who would receive it. It's an excellent point. And you know, if you stop and think about it, let's take a question like transportation. If the masses of people, working people, were asked, we need to figure out how to get from point A to point B, let's figure this out from scratch. We would not come up with cars and highways. This is a dis disaster for the for the world, you know. But we might come up with um, buses, trains. We might come up with other ways of moving people. But we don't start by asking the question, how should we respond to the need for transportation? That's so funny you said that. When we were in Puerto Rico, we're driving. We're we're driving across this small island, right? It's an island. There's tons of cars vehicles on this island and you don't think about what that means on a day-to-day -day basis but we were passing some weird under construction thing that it that's that's going through the middle of the of the highway between the, the two directions and it looks like a high-speed train is being built and we're like wow that would be incredible we wouldn't yeah. have to rent a car to drive across the island we could 
hop on this high speed train and get there in a, a fraction of the time? Why haven't we invested in ideas like that instead of, uh, you know, creating the, the infrastructure for uh, this island to be able to import all of these vehicles? And, and that's not good for anybody, clearly. Exactly. Come on in, yeah, yeah. On that note. Yeah, let's wrap it up. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply about the world we share, name this political moment with clarity and hope, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement toward freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations, and we ask both what's going on and then what is to be done. I'm deeply grateful to be joined in dialogue with Eleanor Stein and Jeff Jones, two of my closest comrades and dearest friends going back decades. Eleanor Stein was an administrative law judge at the New York State Agency that regulates the energy industry, and she's an adjunct instructor at Albany Law School and the State University of New York, teaching climate change law. Jeff Jones is an environmental activist, organizer, and consultant for environmental and clean energy groups in upstate New York. He's a board member of the Harlem-based We Act for Environmental Justice, which we'll talk about, and he's the chairman of the board of John Brown Lives, an extraordinary group in upstate New York. Eleanor and Jeff, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to see you, Bill. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, I want to begin in an odd place. We'll work up to the the important work you're doing now, but I, I wanted to ask you each, maybe starting with Eleanor, how far back do we go? I was probing my memory, which is shaky. How far back do you and I go? I remember meeting you for the first time in, I'd say the spring of 1969 in Chicago. We were there preparing for the Days of Rage, which took place in October. And I had moved there from New York City to organize a group of lawyers to be ready to defend what we anticipated to be hundreds of criminal cases for people who were rioting in the streets against the war in Vietnam. Were you a lawyer at that point? I was a law student. And, and had you been kicked out of Columbia yet? <laughs> I, I dropped out. I like to think of it as a voluntary leave of absence, which I, I tried see. to end when I tried to get back there in 1981, and they wouldn't readmit me. And then you went to CUNY Law School in New York. Yes, and I was in the first graduating class, 1986. And we'll talk about that, too, because that was an extraordinary uh, group. But, yeah, you, you were involved in the Columbia Rebellion of 1968 and voluntarily left Columbia before they could kick you out. I like that. Very good. And Jeff Jones, how far do we go back? Well, Bill, I like to think we go back to, not to be too precise about it, October 16th, 1965, the first international days of protest against the Vietnam War. We hadn't met yet, but you were busy getting arrested in Ann Arbor, and I was just avoiding arrest in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think we actually met in person at some SDS meetings the following year. I think so, too. But how did you get to Cincinnati? You were a student in Ohio at that point. I was attending Antioch College. I just started and I had uh, a a friend of mine had said to me, whatever you do, don't get involved in stuff when you get to college. Mm -hmm. And I managed to not get involved in stuff for about six weeks. And then (laughs) 
And then I, I couldn't take it any longer and went down to Cincinnati and it was uh, pretty intense. And that's kind of your limit as long as I've known you. Six weeks and then you get involved in stuff. That's your that's your M.O. Okay, well, it's great to have both of you here. And I, I really want us to uh, cover a lot of ground in a short time. But I'd like to get I'd like to dive first into something that you've been uh, not only um, an inspiration to me, but a real um, you've been educating me on questions of the environment for decades. And it's something that I'm constantly struggling to keep up with. But maybe, Eleanor, you could begin by talking a bit about this concept we hear, uh, environmental justice. What does it mean and, and why is it important and why do you put it at the center of your organizing and activism today? You know, you could call it environmental racism. And maybe that it makes it clearer what the emphasis is. Both terms are important and they're, they complement one another. But I will, uh, I'll just say a few words about how I see it in the most general sense, in the broader sense. And yeah, I want to go back and call out um, our very dear friend, Cecil Corbin Mark, who died last October. He was uh, a great leader, Harlem born and bred lived and died in Harlem. He, at a very young age, he was 51 when he died. And he was the deputy director of uh, the group you mentioned, We Act for Environmental Justice, known as We Act. And uh, he, he became a great leader on a global scale as well as a national scale, and very much also rooted in his community in Northern Manhattan. And uh, he taught us so much about the problems of racism in the black community and had a very broad view and, a, and an international view of racism and how it works and how central it is to the organization of the environment and how it affects the environment where people live. And he would always say, it's racial, but it's also spatial. Mm. And I always think of his words. And if you just look out over your city or your town where you live and look at who's living where, who is enjoying the benefits of nature and the benefits of the environment? Who lives on the waterfront? Who has parks in their communities? Who has open space for their children? Uh, and on the other hand, who has, uh, you know, truck depots? Who has bus stations? Who has railway stockyards? Who has uh, uh, waste transfer stations? These are the landmarks and who has power plants. Mm. I know in New York City, which is mostly the city I relate to, it's, it couldn't be clearer. Who has highway interchanges? And the, each of those things affects the environment in which children grow up, the air they breathe, the water they drink uh, to a profound degree and affects their health, their ability to learn, everything about it, their access to food, access to healthcare, all of these things are determined and are really functions of the environment. So on the one hand, you have the unequal distribution of the benefits of the environment, like open space and parkland and outdoors. And on the other hand, the burdens on the environment, the impacts of all of those toxic infrastructures that I mentioned and many, many more. Mm. And when you look at your city through that lens, you never quite see it the same way again, because there it is all spread out in front of you. And, um, and so from those conditions, uh, which are really endemic throughout the United States and, and are also global, 
stem, you know, an understanding of environmental racism and what it has meant over hundreds of years and the movement to expose it and oppose it has grown up. Yeah, that's very uh, compelling notion. It's racial, but it's also spatial. And I'm very sad about the loss of Cecil, your friend, your comrade. Um, I attended the memorial service and I heard you, Jeff, give a very moving uh, tribute to Cecil's work. Maybe you, Jeff, could pick up on what Eleanor is saying and tell us a little bit about We Act. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. We Act is such a wonderful and important organization, both in Upper Manhattan, in New York City, and really the country and the world. For one thing, it's over 30 years old. It got its start when the city of New York decided it needed to build a massive uh, sewage treatment system to protect the Hudson River, an important environmental goal, something we all care about. And so where will they build this massive sewage treatment plant? Off of the Upper West Side, off of Riverdale in the Bronx? No, put it off of Harlem, of course. And so this, and it's there today, this massive infrastructure which takes all of the uh, sewage from a great deal of Manhattan, the Bronx, uh, large parts of New York City, and cleans it before releasing it into the Hudson River. Okay. They didn't do a very good job when they first started to build it. And there was, it was very offensive to the neighborhood. And a group of uh, environmental leaders from Harlem, black leaders, came together to oppose uh, or demand that the city do a better job. And they were successful. They they got uh, air quality conditions improved at the plant. They got a park built on top of it. I mean, it's there and it's huge, but a lot of people have grown up with it as a neighborhood park on the upper, uh, on, the, on the north side of Manhattan. And so that was the beginning. There were, uh, sort of the dramatic first event was a uh, stoppage of traffic on the West Side Highway. And, and that seven people were arrested at that point, and they became the nucleus of the creation of this new organization. And then they've gone on uh, to, to, to fight for a cleaner environment in Harlem, to fight against the uh, overabundance of what were then diesel bus depots in the part of New York City, which had the worst asthma rates. And we can track the, 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 what, what happens to kids who are exposed to asthma, number one cause of school absenteeism. In, in, in New York City and probably many other schools. And of course, uh, the environmental justice movement, which had recent, just was coming into its own around uh, a, a theory of toxic waste and race and looking at the neighborhood from the spatial point of view that Eleanor was just talking about, uh, just made it so much became apparent when you when you look at it that way. And that has led to the creation of this organization, which uh, is now a national leader. There's a Washington, we have a Washington DC office, uh, very deeply engaged with the Biden administration uh, on issues of climate and, and environmental justice. So, uh, but that's the origin. The origin was fighting against that sewage treatment plant over 30 years ago. That is really an amazing origin story. So you had said um, that uh, we act and and some of the other environmental groups are working pretty closely, putting pressure on organizing within the Biden administration. To say a word about about um, uh, 
why, why you're hopeful about that, uh, what you think um, is worth watching for those of us who are watching. Well, I'll say a couple of things, and I think, Jeff, I want you to add something as well. So, you know, in the early days of an administration, you don't have a lot to go on except the appointments. And there's a lot to learn from who they've brought inside. And we have several colleagues uh, from New York, let's say, and some from other places, who are now working actually in the White House on the climate change task force. So they're working directly with John Kerry, who's the global ambassador for climate for the Biden administration. So uh, one is uh, Ali Zaidi, who uh, was a very close friend of Cecil's and uh, worked in the New York governor's office and ran the energy and environment program and brought in just a whirlwind of environmental justice consciousness and and environmental racism at the forefront of everything he did. Not simply put at the end of every panel or just as an add-on or the last thing on the syllabus, but the lens through which he saw the whole, all of the environmental problems and all the climate problems. Uh, also, Sonia Agarwal, who was the Deputy Director of Energy Innovation, a brilliant energy and climate theorist and analyst is working with Ollie in the White House. So those things, are uh, are very encouraging. Not to mention that you know the Secretary of the Interior and the, all the other appointments. And Jeff, maybe you'll say a word about what happened in the appointment of the head of the EPA. Well, if I could, I I'll, I will get to that. I just want to back up just a little bit and just say that the environmental justice movement, which has been around for a long time. Uh, really, you can trace its founding document to 1987, and it has been a, a movement that has been fighting to get attention, to get people to pay attention all these years. And it is a movement that is used to operating on the defensive, banging on the doors, saying, would you please listen to us? And all of a sudden, everybody is listening. That's what's reflected in what Eleanor was talking about, about the appointments in the White House. There's some very interesting stuff going on in relation to climate and climate justice here in New York. Uh, but the main thing is that I want to just contextualize it in relation to Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. that, and, the, and the trial, the Chauvin, the Chauvin trial in, in Minneapolis and all of the uh, police killings of black people that have been taking place, everything that's going on, it's just getting harder and harder not to see the depth of racism in this country. And to discover, as people are now beginning finally to, to, to realize how much racism plays a role in both the environment and the climate crisis mm. uh, is, is being reflected. And some people uh, are trying to suppress that and wipe it out. And other people are embracing it. And so far, the president uh, is off to a good start in terms of uh, recognizing the importance of environmental justice. The uh, um, environmental justice movement was not happy with his first appointment uh, to, to head the Environmental Protection Agency. And, and the, California, the folks in California said, no, we really can't support her. She, she has not been as strong an ally as we need for our perspective. Mm. And that is... That is what led to the appointment of Michael Regan, uh, the first black head of the EPA from out of North Carolina. And he really was put in that position by the Biden administration because of the support he received from organizations like We Act, the uh, Environmental Justice Leadership Forum, and other organizations across the country. So that's just one more example 
of the way in which the environmental justice movement and the environmental justice concept are taking hold in this country today. Yeah, you know, I, I'm uh, that is encouraging. And at the same time, as you say, Eleanor, the you can get a little hint about who they appoint to which things. And so I see a Cold War coming in foreign policy, and that's horrifying and many other uh, bad signs. But this is somewhat hopeful. But then I need to ask you, how do you see the the relationship between a mass movement and projects like the ones you've been involved in and working with the government? I mean, in other words, a lot of people would listen to you right now and say, "Okay, are they being co-opted? I mean, what's the reality? How do we keep the keep the movement growing as well as um, walk on two legs towards environmental justice? How? Well, I think, you know, that's always a tough question. That's a hard question for every movement. Um, And I will say, I I think that the environmental justice movement has been masterful at being on the one hand, as Jeff said, militant and and principled and not in its relation to government and also in its relationships to uh, what we used to call mainstream environmental organizations or big green, Mm. uh, which have historically been very weak on environmental justice issues, very weak. And now are facing having to make some serious changes in how they see the world and who they think they're talking to and who they think they're representing. Um, so I think, uh, I think, you know, the environmental justice movement is in areas of, of the country where it's strong, has the capability to uh, leverage governmental decisions because they represent a potential threat to just business as usual. They have the capacity to bring people into the streets and not just not just on a demonstration once, but day after day. So um, in New York in 2019, the state legislature had passed a law called the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which uh, not only set very aggressive targets for um, getting fossil fuels out of our economy, but also for the first time established really groundbreaking environmental justice targets, including a set aside of 35 to 40% of all spending and all, uh, all revenues from climate, in climate uh, programs to be used for the benefit of environmental justice communities. And Governor Cuomo in, uh, I'd say mid-May 2019, made a public statement saying, I will never sign a law with those set-asides in it. I will never sign that. And he woke up the next morning and the streets in front of his office in Albany were filled with people, mostly people of color, and they were filled every day for the next probably month. Thousands and thousands of people coming up by bus from New York City, coming in from Buffalo, from all over the state. And uh, in the middle of June, he called a press conference at Fordham Law School and had Al Gore by his side and signed the law and then took full credit for it. Perfect. My law. And everyone said, fine, it's your law. Now let's (laughs) implement it. So, Jeff, how do you see it, this question of inside-outside mobilization and organizing on the one hand and then working with real politics? And you've done both most of your life. So how do you see it at this moment with environmental justice? Well, I think this is a significant moment where years and years of organizing are starting to pay off. And it's because the movement exists and has been 
completely principled and consistent that the conditions that we're seeing out there in the world have have caught up with the analysis. Mm. What the movement has been saying is the situation ever since the release of the 1987 report, Toxic Waste and Race, is coming to pass. And so, uh, it, it, you know, you, you build a movement towards certain goals. I've been at it long enough. We've been at it long enough to know that there's never one day where it's all, you're going to win everything and it's all going to be over. It's a process with wins and, and, and losses. And I'm on the side that believes that you have to be optimistic and positive about the successes. Otherwise, how do you motivate people to stay involved? How do you how, how do you teach young people that the movement has great potential and is going to be a success? And so right now, we are living through a time of potential. I won't say that we've won anything, but it's a time of incredible potential. And of course, the most important thing about it is that we're doing this climate work and this environmental justice work with a perspective that understands or is struggling to understand the role of racism in our country's history, the original sin of this country. Mm-hmm. And as long as as long as we keep focusing on that, I think uh, I think that the, the the movement has a strong chance of of really making a difference. I think that's really encouraging, hopeful, um, thoughtful. You know, I was thinking what I was thinking about when I asked the question. I was thinking about when I was organizing in Chicago for small schools, and one morning we woke up, and the headline in the Sun Times was "Mayor Daly agrees small schools is the only way to go." And I called one of my collaborators and said, we've won. Let's leave town. It's not going to get any better than this. And of course, we hadn't won a goddamn thing. So that's that's one of the problems is the feeling of co-optation. But I couldn't agree with you more that we should claim our victories when we can. Claim no easy victories. But for example, when, the, uh, when baseball, a conservative reactionary organization, moves out of Atlanta, we won that. That's important that we won that. It's not the end of the struggle for racial justice. It's not the end of the struggle for environmental, I mean, for economic or any kind of justice, but at the same time, let's claim it and let's keep moving, but don't get lulled to sleep. What do you think, Jeff? Well, you, you, you were agreeing with, we were agreeing with each other, which is Absolutely. not, the, not Absolutely. the first time that's happened. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm happy about that. I wanted to go back to a thing you said in relation to the current administration and a reference to Cold War politics. Because the thing that's so important about the environmental justice movement in our country is the not only the potential, but the fact of who has been united around those politics. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because it, it because the negative things, the, the 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 harmful impacts of the environment that Eleanor was referring to earlier are being understood. And the people who are addressing the the negative impacts of the environment, the toxics, the pollution, the air pollution, the contaminated water, the lead in school drinking water, you know, all kinds of things like that is a basis of unity. And that's what's got us to this point. And I just want to say, Bill, that that basis exists globally, too. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think when we talk about the bad globalization, we should note the good globalization, the feminist upsurge, the Black Lives Matter upsurge, the environmental upsurge. None of none of these problems can be solved locally. They're all international problems. And, and emphasizing the most oppressed and foregrounding racism around the environmental 
I call it the uh, catastrophic capitalist environmental collapse. Emphasizing the racial nature of that, it seems to me, builds the, the principled basis for an international movement that's the good internationalism. And let's just be very clear about one thing, which is that there are going to be disparate, there are being disparate impacts as a result of the climate crisis, both in the, our country and globally. And the people least responsible are the ones who are suffering the most. And that is a basis of unity. Will, will, be, will we be able to save our planet? Don't know yet. But that is a basis of unity that, that circles the globe. Eleanor. Yeah, two, just two comments on this, this particular conversation. One is, um, Bill, you're reminding me of a colleague of ours. Uh, I was at a, a conference uh, about um, the issue of how do we get fossil fuels out of our production of electricity, which is a very fundamental issue. Mm. Probably the single most fundamental issue in terms of physically decarbonizing our economy. We have to make electricity from solar and wind, all of it. And there's really no alternative. And so uh, a bunch of sort of big green and uh, tech technocrats were talking about different strategies for decarbonization over in one corner. And uh, a colleague of ours was uh, who went up and was speaking on a panel shortly after said, I just want to remind everyone that it's not just about electrons. It's also about colonialism. And I've kept that's been one of my mantras. But I also wanted to add that one of the things I'm working on now actually is looking toward the next global climate summit, which is in Glasgow, although really it's going to be in cyberspace, it's supposed to be in Glasgow, but it won't be in person in November of this year. And that's the first that what's the next sort of uh, milestone meeting since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. Mm. And in Paris, the agreement was that the countries of the world would come back in five years with more aggressive, more ambitious targets. And uh, it was supposed to be last year. It was postponed because of COVID. It's going to happen now in November. Uh, and what we are seeing there and what we've seen every time at the global summits is that the rift between the developed world and the developing world, between the what we used to call the global north and the global south between the wealthy countries and the poor poor countries is is continued to grow and mm -hmm. that it's the uh you know the the um the developing world the third what we used to call the third world has always played the leading role as a moral force in these global meetings mm -hmm. and demanded that the developing developed countries the wealthy countries of the world pay their fair share and uh and looking at solutions all the way to everyone on earth should have the same annual allowance of carbon emissions. There's no reason why we in the United States should be able to emit, you know, 25 times as much as I'd say people in Latin America do. And so, uh, but that's kind of a, a vision which was, has been put forward, but also very practical issues about how is the, are the wealthy countries, are they going to pay their way? Are we going to, shoulder our burden to reduce our emissions and make the changes in how our society is organized needed to actually get off fossil fuel. And if we can't do that, then the climate project is pretty doomed. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. And I think it's hugely important for people who haven't paid close enough attention to the environmental justice question to look at the 
the global uh, impact. And, and as Jeff says, the, the people who are impacted the most are least responsible for it. The people most responsible uh, are, are taking kind of the least, um, are least impacted and taking the least responsibility for it. So uh, I'd like you to talk about that a bit. But what occurred to me when you were saying, when you were speaking, was that everything from immigration, we think about, you know, climate Refugees. You think about, you know, uh, environmental immigrants. I mean, the, the, that's impacted by this. But then I also always go back to the Pentagon. Isn't the Pentagon one of the world's worst polluters? And, uh, you know, you think of hundreds of military bases around the world and airplanes circling the globe, bombers circling. Isn't that uh, one of the key examples of kind of the gross inequity of, of kind of spitting out pollution and killing the environment? Actually, the the uh, the U.S. military is the largest fossil fuel user in the world. Oh my God! Somehow not surprised, but horrified. Yeah, and so so you know even as they and and as I understand it, the Defense Department, the Pentagon, has uh, all kinds of contingency plans because they've predicted this climate catastrophe for decades. Is that am I right about that or onto something, Jeffrey? Well, yes, totally. I mean, there was a Pentagon report that came out probably about 12 years ago that basically said, we're going to need to build a wall across the southern United States because of the climate refugees mm. who are going to be trying to come north as the, as the climate crisis unfolds. To some of us, we watched that uh, whole argument over the wall, and that's, uh, that's what we're thinking is going on. Mm. I mean, we're already seeing so many impacts. I'll give you another one, which you might agree with or find of interest, but the Arab Spring, right? The young man in Tunisia who set himself on fire that kicked off the Arab Spring. Why was he, uh, why had he become a vendor of vegetables without a permit in downtown, in, in, in Tunisia, hmm. uh, in Tunis, simply because the climate had changed so badly in the farming region of that country, he could no longer farm. That's a climate impact. Right. That's that's just one example of so many uh, similar examples that are taking place all across the world. And of course, the thing is that that's most disturbing. Um, you know, there there are plenty of countries that twenty years ago were considered developing nations, and, and you know, not the advanced industrial nations. Their goal has been to industrialize to catch up with the West. And who you know how. How good a job are they going to do from the point of view of uh, clean energy, powering their, industri their, their industrial progress with clean energy as opposed to fossil fuels? That's not something we need to really get into, but it's something that people like us are paying a lot of attention to. And everyone needs to keep an eye on that because it's going to have a, a lot, to, lot to say about how the world, uh, the globe plays out in the next uh, couple of generations. What are the what are the key issues that folks who are listening to this should be paying attention to? The key struggles, the key issues, the key developments over the next uh, several months and a couple of years. I would, I, I'd say there are several of them. There are the macro issues, and then there are the local act, local issues, uh, where where you live, where your family family lives. I mean. You know, one issue I work on in New York is lead in school drinking water. We're trying to right. eliminate lead from the drinking water and that's coming through the taps in all the schools in New York. That's a very important. That's very important for kids in classrooms. We want them to be learning in healthy environments. Uh, on another scale, is how are we going to power our energy? 
Mm. Are we going to be able to build enough wind, enough solar, enough offshore wind to really be able to transform to a clean energy economy? I mean, here in New York, great victory, especially for the anti-nuclear movement, the closing of the Indian Point nuclear power reactors. Mm. Two old, not particularly um, popular reactors that also do a lot of damage to the Hudson River, 37 miles north of Times Square. They're closing. They will close. And one of the things that will happen as a result of their closure is that fossil fuel pollution uh, emissions are going to go up in the Hudson Valley in New York until we get the infrastructure in place for uh, wind and solar power. But that's happening. I'm confident that that's going to happen. I have no question, no second thoughts about that that particular struggle that we were a part of. Mm. Uh, and, and in fact, on another level, in New York, and I don't know, uh, I think this is true in other parts of the country, the uh, renewable energy sector is the fastest growing sector in the economy. There are more jobs available uh, for people who want to work on wind and solar and, and energy efficiency and, and, and everything related to the, the future clean energy green economy. And so you asked me what what should people be thinking about? Uh, younger people should certainly be thinking about careers in that field because it's going to be transformative. So two things. One is um, what I was going to say before, if you can add it in or not, was that um, scientific studies now have shown that around the world, the effects of climate change are functioning as uh, as a um, as a conflict multiplier in societies in conflict has been demonstrated in Syria, all over the Middle East, and actually many parts of the world. So climate change exacerbates social conflict that may appear to be about something completely different. And that's something we've come to, uh, to realize. Uh, but the other point is, I wanna say that uh, we definitely need all the renewable energy, but at least as important is shutting down the fossil fuel industry. And I think of the things I would say, the priorities for people to pay attention to, not the pipelines, you know, the D Dakota XL pipeline is still, the Keystone pipeline is still underway. Uh, the great work of the water protectors at Standing Rock is still necessary and support for their struggle is still necessary. And really every community has some form of fossil fuel infrastructure that needs to be shut down. And so on the one hand, we need more solar and wind. On the other hand, just as urgent, at least as urgent, is stopping all burning of coal and stopping all burning of natural gas. So you're going to have to swap your stove in for an induction stove, though. I see. You know, I, I think, though, what's what's great about this is that just as we talk about abolishing prisons or defunding police, when you say abolish, shut it down, shut down the fossil industry, you're saying something very complicated. It's not just some, a slogan on a sign. It's actually a call for a, a different imagination about how we could live and should live and, and then taking the necessary steps to get there. That is really... Um, very helpful. Let me ask you uh, this on, on on this question of what is to be done. How can people? What Jeff says locally as well as nationally. Locally, you should look for environmental justice organizations that you can be a part of, and that's true all over the country, right? Um, Internationalist-looking uh, organizations and so on. But who could they contact in terms of some of these national struggles? Well, for one thing, there's. Uh 
really what was the first global movement against climate change is 350.org, which was organized by Bill McKibben, the writer, among other people, many other people, and now works all over the world. And their website, you know, 350.org is a fantastic source for information everywhere about what's going on. And they have, they didn't really start as an environmental justice organization, but they have really become one, uh, partly because of their international focus and partly because of the effect of huge movements by native peoples, including in the US, uh, who have really taken leadership in this era. In this era. Uh, so that's one place I would go in addition to looking locally. Yeah, let me jump in on that. I, I would recommend that people try to find the organizations locally that are led locally. In other words, uh, you'd be amazed at how strong the environmental justice movement is around the country. Like one of the groups that we are very impressed with and try, try to work with as much as possible is it called Uprose in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And Uprose has a... Uh, Every year they do, every summer, they do a youth training program around the climate. They've trained hundreds, mm. hundreds of Black and Latinx young people to be climate activists over the years. And it's really making a difference. And if something like that isn't happening in your neighborhood, send Uprose some money and help them do it. See. The organization that I'm involved with, We Act uh, for Environmental Justice, I urge people to check out the We Act website. And we act among its other projects is the leader of the Environmental Justice Leadership Forum, which is a coalition of 54 organizations around the country. You can find out about that on, on the WEACT website. I went there just before we talked to just make sure everything was there and, and it's there. You can find there out everything is. you need to know. And there's also a group called the Climate Justice Alliance, which is a, a, another national group of environmental justice organizations. You know, these are... These are not what you, not the mainstream environmental organizations that you've heard about. I mean, this you know the Sierra Club is is there and trying to help out, and and other organizations are there. But these are authentic, community led, black led, Latinx led, uh, indigenous led organizations that exist. And I would say that one of the highest priorities we can all have right now is finding people like us finding ways to support those organizations. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I, I often say to my students, you know, everybody knows what they would have done in the days of slavery. Everybody knows they would have been with John Brown and, and Harriet Tubman. Everybody knows they would have saved Anne Frank. What are you doing today? And I appreciate you both giving um, concrete connections that could be made. You can join the movement right now and you don't have to wait for some perfect moment. Uh, this is that moment. You know, one of the features of this podcast is we sometimes have a little thing we call our book of books. And this is a reading. It's a bibliography. Uh, where, where, What should we read? What should we know about? And sometimes it's eclectic and I just throw things in that are touching me. But I'd like you to each contribute to our book of books and maybe tell us what you think some of the foundational things we ought to be reading today uh, in terms of waking up to uh, the catastrophe that's upon us and also the possibilities of transformation that are right in front of us. So um, there's a book which I would suggest people read uh, looking at the issue of climate change broadly. And then I have a couple of suggestions that are specifically about environmental justice. Uh, 
Uh, but uh, there's a book by Bill McKibben called Arth. It's E-A-A-R-T-H. It's about eight years old now, so it's a little behind the times. But it's a real shocker. And it's a, you know, Bill is a wonderful writer. It's very easy reading. And it'll give you nightmares. So recommendation for it. And, uh, and he has a new book called Falter, F-A-L-T-E-R, which is also very good. Um, and I've also just sent you a book by Elizabeth Colbert called Under a White Sky, mm. which is uh, about many different attempts by humans to drastically alter the environment to fit our purposes. And the, it begins with the, uh, the re, uh, redesigning of the Chicago River to change the direction, make it flow out of Lake Michigan instead of into Lake Michigan. And a bright idea that has had terrible, dire consequences. Uh, but it ends with uh, what's called geoengineering, which is the scientific projects to basically uh, having given up on the effort to stop to get off fossil fuel. Scientists are now looking at how can we re-engineer the sky and the clouds to reduce the temperatures that are reaching Earth. And uh, one of these ideas will turn the sky white and you could read about it in this book. Oh my God, Frankenstein's monster. But I have three books I want to recommend on environmental justice. There's okay. a foundational book. Uh, it's an edited uh, um, book called The Environmental Justice Reader. Uh, who, who published it, it? It's published by Arizona, I guess University of Arizona Press. University of Arizona Press. That's kind of a basic book. There's also several books by someone named Luke Cole, L-U-K-E-K-C-O-L-E. Luke Cole has written also basic environmental justice books. Uh, anything by Dr. Robert Bullard, B-U-L-L-A-R-D, a very distinguished African-American professor who has really laid the groundwork. Um, but a couple of recent books, Naomi Klein, The Battle for Paradise is a quick read Ten bucks, uh, and it's the story of Hurricane Maria and what happened afterwards in Puerto Rico. And there's a lot about people from Uprose in that book, actually. Mm -hmm. And finally, if you really want to get into this and you're interested in what is now kind of a new, a new, a new form of critical analysis, it's an eco-critical view of the world, uh, like race crit critical race theory. This is critical environmental theory, and this is mm. uh, from a Black point of view, and it's called A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None. So Anthropocene is the new name that scientists have given our era, meaning the era defined by humanity. Uh, it's a new geological era. A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None by Catherine Yusoff, Y-U-S-O-F-F. Thick reading, like all critical, critical resistance theories, uh, but uh, really challenging and interesting. Well, I want to add one book. Uh, I've you've always fed readings and thoughts to me about the environment, but there was one time a few years ago when I sent you a book about the environment before I'd even read it. I read a review of it, and I sent it to you. 
It's called Overstory, right? And uh, I, it's it. I, I, you know, I found it so compelling. It's a novel, so it's not uh, on the on the same wavelength as some of the things you're mentioning. But it's such a compelling novel, and it's about it's about trees and how the trees are talking to each other, but we're not listening. And I say that in the same sense that I would say Moby Dick is about whales, um, which it is, but it's about way more. So I love the Overstory by Power. And uh, I think it's a it's a long book, but it's a it's a quick read because it's such a compelling narrative and it drives you forward. Yeah, the Overstory is a fantastic book, and thank you for mentioning it. I'm I'm just gonna I'm holding up a copy of Toxic Wastes and Race, which okay. is the, the founding document of the environmental movement. This is one of my more prized possessions, and so I'm not going to let it out of my sight. Uh, but it was tra- transforming, politically transforming as I was moving from uh, one stage of the movement to another. Uh And uh, so if people find it, it was also updated about five years ago. Uh, So it's not a book. It's a, it's a publication, but it's uh, it's foundational. It's a foundational document. Nice. Um, You mentioned the movement and the various ways people are involved in movement. So I'm going to pivot and I'm going to pivot to two separate things. First, I'm going to pivot to, um, to your backgrounds, because you are uh, the parents of two remarkable young men um, who I've known their whole lives. Um, and you come from two really interesting um, backgrounds. And, and one of your sons, Ty Jones, uh, wrote a book uh, about it's more or less a memoir of the 20th century told through the story of his grandparents, your parents. Maybe say a word about where you came from into the movement, Eleanor, and then maybe Jeff would add a word. I'd love to. Um, I guess I was born into it. That's right. (laughs) My parents were uh, communists, radicals. Uh, My mother especially was an anti-racist activist all her life. And and interestingly, and and they both became unionists. Uh, My father especially was a trade union organizer was one of the organizers of the first federal workers union in America, United Federal Workers of America. And his work in that union in the 40s and 50s, he worked with Louis Burnham, who was an uncle of Cecil Corbin Mark. And oh, my. As, and part of this Burnham, Corbin Mark, Angela Davis's family, Margaret Burnham, were all a constellation of kind of Harlem reds from back in the day. And so... Uh, I think um, Louis Burnham represented the, the furriers workers, fur, fur workers, the furriers union, which was a radical union at the time. So uh, more common threads. And uh, I joined the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement early in life and um, got arrested at Columbia and kind of never turned back. Yeah, I knew your mother, of course, pretty well. Uh, your father passed away by the time I met you, but your mother was a force of nature, very involved in educational justice, very involved in racial justice. And uh, I remember Ella Baker and your mother were friends and uh, another link. Yes, good friends. Jeffrey? Well, because we've been talking about the environment, I want to mention that I grew up in Southern California in a family very plugged into the environment. 
I believe it was the summer of my, when I was 15, I slept indoors only three nights the entire summer. I spent the entire summer when I wasn't camping and camping out up in the Sierra Nevadas, I was sleeping in the backyard because I felt more comfortable outside than inside. And so I sort of, I come from the environmentalism from having grown up with that. And my parents were Quakers and, and uh, very decent people. And it, mostly, except for the Quaker community that I grew up in, uh, pretty much a sort of a Nixonian Republican environment otherwise. And so there was always the feeling of uh, different, being different and having to sort of stick up for a different set of values. So that's what I brought to the movement. One other story, so complicated, just shows how complicated all this stuff is. My father, this used to be a real point of pride in my family. My father was the first white person born in Yosemite Valley. Holy cow. The first white person. And we used to think, boy, that's great. What a, what a thing to be proud of, you know? John Muir would be so so pleased if he if he knew that. And then one day I'm reading about the history of Yosemite Valley, and I find out that the the, the post Civil War, the troop of soldiers that was sent to clear the natives living in Yosemite Valley out were buffalo soldiers. Mm. They were they were black soldiers who had been mustered, you know, had, had helped win the Civil War. And we're now part of the U.S. Army. And one of the things that these soldiers did was fight Native Americans all across the West. And actually, I don't want to use the word genocide in this particular situation, but there were Native American families been living in Yosemite Valley for years, and then they were gone. It's, It's just one of those contradictions of life that we have to be aware of to help us have a better understanding of the complicated world we're living in. Yeah, I, I'm constantly reminding students and others that the problem of privilege and the problem of our broken history isn't something to be uh, spend your time beating your chest or being ashamed of. It's something to transcend and be aware of. The real problem with privilege is that it anesthetizes you and puts you to sleep. So waking up is a constant challenge and a constant goal, I think, for those of us who want to live in a joyful and just and and just and peaceful place but um that brings me to kind of my last pivot which is that we've known each other for decades um we've been involved in anti-racist struggles forever we were in the weathermen together the weather underground together and i can edit that out if you want (laughs) but now why would i right um yeah so we were we were we've been shoulder to shoulder through a lot of things but one of the things that i'm i think has bonded us together is that we've looked at people like john brown as exemplars of what is possible in terms of fighting for racial justice and and racial reconciliation and you are now the chair of the board of john brown lives maybe you'd say a word about that marvelous organization and what it's up to and how folks can get in touch with john brown lives I'd be glad to. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, John Brown Lives is an organization that's rooted in the Adirondacks, in the way in the north country of New York. And why are we up there? Because it turns out that's where John Brown is buried. Union troops marched off during the Civil War singing John Brown's body is moldering in the grave. Well, it turns out the grave is in upstate New York. And 
for years and years and years, decades, really, that piece of information was just not a part of the uh, history of New York. And we began to celebrate the legacy of John Brown around the time of his 200th birthday, which would be in the year 2000, and began to create an organization which is part of the struggle against racism in a, in a very rural part of New York, but a very beautiful and important part, which are, for those who know it, the, the, uh, the Adirondack Park is 6 million acres of land that is, uh, over half of it is, is classified as forever wild critical to the struggle against uh, climate change, for example. Mm -hmm. But so we've created it, a, an anti-racist organization that allies with uh, struggles to diversify the population in the Adirondacks, reform the police, and of course, deal with the Adirondacks hidden diversity. When I say hidden diversity, people think of the Adirondacks as overwhelmingly white, but it's it's a prison colony. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people living up there uh, who have been who are living there because they're in prison and they're mostly black and Hispanic. And we have uh, been with families coming to visit their friends in prison. They're not coming to visit their loved ones in prison who are having experiences like they were going to the Jim Crow Deep South. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a it's a terrible thing. And it's terrible that the that that was a decision that was made 50, 60 years ago to make the economy of the Adirondacks a combination of outdoor recreation and prisons. Mm. And so prison abolition, abolitionism is gonna have a big impact on the Adirondacks, a very positive impact uh, over time. So that's something that we're involved in. Uh, but I also just, since you asked me, I just have to say this, it's not just about John Brown. Uh, John Brown uh, actually moved his family to the Adirondacks in 1848 to help uh, some black families who had been given some land so they could they would own enough property so that the men who had been given the right to vote, but now had to, under a new state law designed to take away black men's right to vote, had to have property valued at two hundred and fifty dollars. And so this was this was that's what this project particular project was about. And there were a number of different communities up there, including one called Timbuktu. Right. So uh, but when John Brown led the. Uh, led the raid on Harper's Ferry, people don't, we're, we're trying to educate people about exactly what was going on there because there were, there were over 20 people who rode with him into Harper's Ferry. Five of them were black, five of them were black men. Several of them were freed slaves. One of them was attempting to uh, be part of a slave uprising because he wanted to rescue his family. And that's a story that's just not told. And so we plan to spend this year telling stories like that both in the North Country, in New York's North Country, but also to anyone who will listen, because we need to know that history. Thanks. And uh, so I really appreciate your longtime support for John Brown Lives. John Brown Lives is available online, johnbrownlives.org, right? Um, and you can find them and donate to support their work or join up. And I have to shout out to the fact that every May uh, there's John Brown's birthday party at the farm. And uh, I make it a point to go even after a recent surgery. I got on a train and made it to John Brown's birthday because it's one of the most important uh, people in American history, the most overlooked people in American history or um, lied about people in American history, but it, an important one. So I'm delighted you're doing that work. And it's so exciting. Eleanor. I just want to add one word on this, which is uh, the story about the uh, 
why John Brown settled his family in this area of the Adirondacks is just one chapter in the fight for the vote for, for black people in this country. And it's amazing to think that that fight goes back to, you know, long before 18, the 1850s, when John Brown moved there and this colony was started in order to give people, black people property so that they could vote. And here it is, you know, 150 years later and we're fighting the same fight. Yeah. It's important. I think it's critical to see those threads, those links, and to rededicate ourselves to those uh, fundamental principles of justice and democracy. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough, Jeff Jones, Eleanor Stein, for joining me under the tree. Uh, I always learn a lot. I've got a new set of books I have to read, and I think people will really appreciate um, this conversation. So thank you both so much. Thank you for inviting us. It was a pleasure. Before we bid you farewell, here's a homework assignment. Find an environmental group in your area that's focused, laser-like, on justice and organizing around the demands of Black, Indigenous, people of color and make contact. That's a modest ask and a realizable goal. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to Malika Leem, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. And I guess I'll thank myself, too. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Aleem. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a lighthouse for environmental justice. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.